Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, uh, coming to you on Valentine's Day. We're recording this portion of the podcast on Valentine's Day, so um, happy Valentine's Day to listeners. Happy Valentine's Day to my co-hosts. I am joined, as always, by uh, Sarah Beijung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how is life off Facebook treating you? Life off Facebook is great. Um, although I find that I do miss things that are there, but I have spies on Facebook to give me the good stuff. Um, right. But I am I'm reporting from very snowy Maine, in which we have twice as much uh, snowfall in the month of February as usual. Uh, although we are only halfway through the month, so wow! I have been jealous thought. of all my all my friends' uh, snow pictures from the East Coast. It looks awesome out there, and. I'm joined also by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, how is life on Twitter? You're on Twitter now. Oh, it's 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 okay. It's I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out its magic, but I after after last podcast, I decided to give it a chance, and I'm warming to do, it. But I'm still not I think entirely you're doing sure of its great. Use. <laughs> no, you see, you know, you know how to use Twitter. It seems, it seems like you're you're up and running. Um, yes, with 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 Sarah off Facebook and compensating by posting more on Twitter, and Harvey now active on Twitter. Twitter is better than ever. Um, on <laughs> on this edition of the podcast, uh, we are going to talk about arts funding in the age of Trump. We'll talk about Harvey's recent uh, essay on HowlRound about what the prospects for uh, NEA funding and government funding for the arts are in the new reality. We will talk about uh, David Hare's polemic against director's theater, which was summarized in an article in The Guardian recently and is going to be in a new book of interviews with playwrights that's coming out. And finally, later on in the podcast, we're very excited that we will be talking to Jennifer Parker Starbuck, who is joining us from across the pond in London to talk to us about TAPS in the UK. And this, listeners, we hope and intend will be the first of a short series of interviews with theater and performance scholars in different places in the world um, to sort of break us out of our America-centric perspective. Before we get to those topics, there's some news to talk about, although admittedly very little. This is the season when job interviews are happening and when grad recruitment is happening, but people are sizing each other up and not making decisions. Um, so I would love to... I just know, heard the re- theme song from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly float through in the <laughs> yeah. background. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, are you my new colleague? I don't know. Uh, I would love to talk about the things that we have you know, heard about who's interviewing where, but we do not traffic in gossip on this podcast. So we can only just say things are happening. It will be very interesting to see where people end up. Uh, Speaking of jobs, though, uh, yesterday, I think this was actually announced in January, but there is a new job announcement for a lecturer, a permanent lecturer position in drama at Queen Mary University in London. The deadline for that is March 15th. And so if you are interested in going and being a colleague with uh, Shane Boyle, and Jen Harvey and Nick Rideout and other fabulous people, um, you should consider applying for that. So that's all I had for news. I don't know if you guys are aware of other you know things happening in the field that we should mention, but it's well, Aster Aster extended its its award submission deadline to March first. Um, so I don't know if this podcast will air 
it will in yeah. time. So uh, just as a, a reminder there, um, lots of good good stuff there. And I, I know we missed last time the announcement of, of Aster's submissions. So I think mm-hmm. the initial proposals have gone in, um, but we should be hearing about those sometime soon and then specific calls will go out. That's right. That's right. So this is that time of year when everyone's just waiting on everything. Um, we The podcast is a year old. Our first uh, episode was released in February, so good for us. We always like those announcements, right? Oh, yay. Yay. Yeah, it's been a year. Put some sound effect, like cheering in there or something, panel. Oh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a great idea. The little is crowd. We can do little, yeah, yeah, that's great. We can do little like audio stingers um, in year two of On Tap. Um, I'll get right on that. Sorry, sorry, innovation. <laughs> um, so. Our first topic that we wanted to talk about today is related to the new direction in American politics. You know, I don't know about you guys. I, I feel like we don't do we try not to do a lot of punditry on the podcast um, and, and make this about the field. But the truth is, it's what we're all obsessed with. And Harvey wrote a fabulous essay um, that appeared in HowlRound called Theater After Obama or With Trump Prospects for, uh, it's about prospects for arts funding. And it's a great essay, Harvey, I really enjoyed reading it. You you engage with all sorts of different aspects of how this political moment um, intersects with uh, people working in the arts. Would you, you know, maybe start us off just by telling us sort of where you started with this project and what you think your sort of main point or main realization in writing it was? Yeah, uh, totally. Listeners to this podcast know that you know, in our various drafts, we've talked about Donald Trump as the candidate for president and then the reality of Trump as president. And it's something that's been not only on our minds as I guess podcasters, but also as academics. And you know, thinking about sort of the arts protest and the ghost light project um, gatherings that occurred across the country, I want to take the time to think about, you know, what does it mean to have this shift from Obama to Trump? You know, what might it suggest in relationship to the future for arts funding? What might it suggest in terms of the politicization of of the content um, and the controversies around the content within the arts, like are we heading toward a new culture wars, for example? Uh, so that prompted me to you know, write and reflect upon what could happen by looking back upon the past uh, and looking back to other Republican administrations to see how arts funding uh, has been affected when um, a Republican president and a Republican Congress are you know, elected and in session. So that's what the article right. is. And so you you know you make some really interesting points, and and one of them is that essentially the outlook for arts funding might but might not be as bleak as people are inclined to assume on the basis of what has happened in past moments when there are Republican presidents. You know, I think it was really interesting to learn that when you have Republican presidents and Republican Congresses, uh, the budget line for the NEA goes up, right? Which in a certain way is just a reminder of the historic fact that Republican um, congressional leaders are less concerned about fiscal responsibility or increasing federal budgets um, when there's a Republican in the White House. Um, But you also talk about, you know, what you think is the um, the more complicated reality of people's political views in the arts. I thought that was a really interesting part of it as well. In other words, you know, you look at what portions of different demographics of people voted for Trump, and you basically make the point that 
it's we have to acknowledge that there are people in the arts who must have voted for Trump, right? Right. So what what in your mind is the, or the sort of implications of the idea that we can't assume that everyone making theater is liberal or leftist and that we're, I don't know, diametrically opposed in all cases to a Trump administration? Right. I mean, I think that we need to be honest with ourselves and in some ways look at ourselves and our field in the mirror and acknowledge the fact that as much as many of us think that we live in a bubble, you know, maybe those who reside alongside us in whatever communities were complicit or active supporters of this administration because otherwise, how do you end up having 41% of, of women, 52% of white women voting for Trump, right? You know, and I think that there's a way in which there's this myth that circulates that a very, very small uh, demographic, you know, somehow managed to lead toward his election. But when you look and you realize that, you know, there were a significant group of people who across all sorts of lines in terms of identity categories uh, who voted for him, uh, and in many cases voted in some ways against their own self-interest, I think that is something that we we need to acknowledge. Uh, But as long as we keep maintaining that you know, it's those people over there who elected this person and, and, and no one I know or no one in my orbit uh, was a supporter. I think that's when we begin to uh, imagine the worst. But then once you accept the fact that there are people around us who were Trump voters or voted for people other than Hillary Clinton, you know, and therefore in some ways enabled the election of Trump, uh, then you might begin to think, OK, well, if people are part of this Trump electorate and they themselves are arts friendly or sort of share some overlap in terms of how we self-identify, then the prospects of what the administration might forecast becomes a bit less gloomy. I, I'm inclined to agree with with Harvey's uh, outlook or prediction about f- funding um, further out, although for for slightly different reasons. So you had mentioned it before, Harvey, and, and you point to the, the sort of historical patterns of arts funding as, as going up under Republican administrations and going down under Democratic administrations. And so I was thinking a lot more about why, why that was. And I actually went back to a piece that circulated before and just after Trump's election, which, and there were a few articles on this, but that went back to, there's an American philosopher who taught for a number of years at Stanford, um, Richard Rorty. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, R-O-R-T-Y. Mm-hmm. And his book, um, Achieving Our Country, Leftist Thought in 20th Century America, which I believe was published in 1998. I didn't make a note, but I think it's 98. And Rorty died in 2007, but in that book, Achieving Our Country, he he observed uh, the split of the American left between a kind of pragmatic wing that was focused on economic mm-hmm. injustice and uh, the rise of the working class um, into the middle class and uh, sort of going from the the New Deal uh, to uh, the 1960s and then the 1960s counterculture being a kind of revolutionary left or radical, more culturally oriented left that was more involved with issues of social equality, culture issues, the culture wars, um, racial equality and civil rights. And the point that he he makes in 98 where he predicts that at some point the working class will realize that the sort of cultural 
what we would now call or what got called in the last election elites, but the sort of culture workers or people invested in cultural issues on the left were no longer invested in the same kind of economic issues. And Mm -hmm. he talks about these as if like the left kind of doesn't have enough bandwidth to to focus on both issues simultaneously. So it kind of made the shift from economic issues of middle America to culture issues, which were increasingly focused on cities and or as seen as interest to cities. And that there would be this kind of backlash that would result in a strong man who would promise to kind of get you revenge over the bureaucrats and the snooty professors. Right. And so people pointed to this as like, aha. And it occurs to me that one of the reasons why I think arts funding goes up under administra- under Republicans is that it's actually really important to have a villain. And yes, yes. it's really valuable to have that villain be someone who doesn't have any real weapons to wield against you. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, I think that the the current administration, whatever one thinks of it, stands to gain a lot from keeping an arts field viable enough that it can appear to fight back, but without enough resources to become so empowered that it might actually change the course. Um, and and Trump, I think, rhetorically has, has, you know, one of his real skills is of cultivating these various groups that he can kind of select at any given moment that will always be a kind of showcase of everything that m- his base supporters believe themselves not to be and right. rail against. And so for that reason, I think the arts might decline, but not enough to be completely obliterated. And And, and there is a way in which the culture wars from the 90s led toward a change in how state and also federal government arts agency or funded arts agencies distributed grants and other allocations. So there has been attention not only toward audience outreach, right, and new audience development, but also a effort to spread the money and the resources across the country. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I served on an NEA panel a couple summers ago, you know, there was great attention to make sure that there weren't parts of the U.S. that were being neglected. So there was great uh, emphasis on making sure that the new play festival in Idaho uh, gets funding and the new play festival somewhere else gets funding. And I think that that is one of those things that has led to a an appreciation and an embrace of the arts in red states. Um, and that might be something that works against any effort to decrease funding. In the same way you can think about, uh, and I'm drawing the blank, the senator from Alaska who voted against the education secretary. Murkowski. Uh, who, Lisa Murkowski. Right, who noted that you know the demands of sort of rural communities in Alaska are such that charter schools will just not work. And in the same way as you can think about the important role that arts funding can play uh, in large parts of the country where, you know, there's not like large urban centers to have an audience to independently support artistic agencies, right, where they need state funding and they need federal funding. So you can think about how in those red states there's a need for arts funding in the same way um, that might lead toward senators and state legislators voting in favor for the arts. This is interesting because I think Both of your comments, in a way, are pointing at the way that the sort of new populist version of conservative politics in the White House might change what we see, what we have absorbed to be the conventional cultural battlegrounds over arts funding, so that you can imagine a Trump administration saying, yes, you know, we should have 
strong arts funding and funding for museums and you know, regional theaters in these red states where, where much of our base is. But I think it's perhaps even more unpredictable than that prediction would uh, lay out because this is a very strange administration. And in terms of the things we know, in terms of the evidence that we have for what this White House might be interested in doing with arts funding, there's a couple of interesting points of data. One was the moment when Donald Trump floated Sylvester Stallone <laughs> as being the a possible candidate for the head of the NEA, which would suggests that if he were if if he Donald Trump were actually interested in it a it points out that he knows the NEA exists which i think is interesting b i think it shows that his vision of what arts and culture in america is is more in line with a kind of i don't know you know popular entertainment a, you know less bougie but more you know sort of masculine working class tastes but also in line with this notion that um, one of the big arts exports of the United States is Hollywood cinema. I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but the fact that he could imagine the NEA being a kind of, uh, I don't know, a sort of hood ornament for American uh, commodity mass cultural exports is interesting. Um, I just had this great image of Sylvester Stallone as a hood ornament. He would make <laughs> really fit I mean, quite well. But go on, panel. Yeah. I, I, I feel like young Sylvester Stallone would make a good hood ornament and less like Rambo part five Sylvester Stallone. But, Which might be a um, hood ornament. <laughs> Already. So, so this is, and I don't, I don't want to go in too long, but you could imagine that if you think, you think about how the sort of, not just Trump's vision, which is uniquely weird and hard to decipher of the arts, but also the sort of perhaps deeper and more distressing to many of us uh, lines of ethno-nationalist populism in the White House could change the way arts funding is thought of. That, In other words, you could see a sort of Bannon view, a Breitbart view of arts funding, which embraced an Anglo-Saxon artistic tradition, right? And where battles could be fought over what kind of projects this money serves as opposed to whether or not there should be more or less of it in the federal budget. So it's interesting to look at a sort of mosaic of information, including past historical developments, but also what is the ideology that is going to attach itself to this, um, these decisions? What I think is helpful here is to think that, or, or rather to create a narrative that can say, or that says Republicans can be arts friendly. And what if there was an aggressive outreach uh, to lawmakers um, you know, from red states, and they were, uh, and, they, and 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 they were shown how over time Republican congressmen and Republican senators uh, have been advocates for the arts, how they have allowed federal and state funding to, you know, support the arts in West Virginia and all these other states, and maybe there's a way of cultivating allies you know, over the next few years that can actually lead to the preservation of the NEA, hopefully the NEH, which I think is more contested than the NEA will be, and maybe lead toward an increased funding. So I think that's a narrative that we haven't heard, and that's something that I think that if we can get that message out there, we might find ourselves recruiting additional allies uh, for the cause of the arts. Well, you know, I mean, I was chatting a while back with Charlotte Canning about something very similar. And one of the things that she pointed out uh, 
is that, you know, theater competitions uh, in Texas are a really big deal and a big part of particularly high school uh, culture right up there with, you know, like football um, Mm -hmm. at, at many of those schools. So in some ways, there's already there's already. A foundation there. I mean, there's all you know. We already have instances of, of demonstrated interest. So, I, I think what you propose is not not totally preposterous. Right. Yeah. It's, I think it's a really interesting idea. It would force us to sort of break out of the mold we might be inclined to be in, which is to think of art activity as protest. You, you, you know, you have a great line in your essay, Harvey, about what it means to have politically engaged theater. And if I can paraphrase you or, or remember what you said, you basically said politically ga- engaged theater is not necessarily only, you know, protest or partisan politics oriented, right. that it has to do with the representation of a social reality. And it could be that the case for public arts funding may rest more now on an understanding of what artistic activity is that's not overtly confrontational. So maybe we should leave that topic there Mm -hmm. um, and move on to our second topic. Um, So Sarah drew our attention to um, uh, an article that was published in The Guardian that features quotes from uh, David Hare, or I should say Sir David Hare, (laughs) um, the the English playwright, in which he complains about what he calls director's theater um, that is distinctly European and and not British, um, and that uh, he thinks there's just too much of. So, you know, I have lots of thoughts about this, but Sarah, I'm really interested in in your takes on this, and uh, maybe you could tell us sort of a bit more about what he argues and what the reactions to it have been. Sure. So this this was published in the there was an article published in the Guardian, January 28th, and it was sort of featured some some juicy quotes uh, from from Hare uh, from an interview with uh, Jeffrey Sweet. In, in the book, What Playwrights Talk About When They Talk About Writing. And uh, just to give you, uh, sort of bring everyone up on the same page, uh, at one point, Hare talks about Britain heading towards what he calls, quote, an over-aestheticized European theater. We've got all these peop- those people called theater makers, God help us, what a word, coming in and doing <laughs> director's theater where you camp up ca- classic plays and you cut them and prune them around. Mm-hmm. And all that directorial stuff that we've managed to keep over on the continent is now coming over and beginning to infect our theater. <laughs> and so I, I really, I found this quite compelling and, and, and quite amusing. And then, of course, there's, uh, there have been a number of different responses, uh, which we can post links to uh, on, our, on the ONTAP page. But one of the things that I, I think jumps out from those quotes and I think will strike many other people, right? One is the, the, the theater makers as a, as a terrible word. The other is this idea of textual fidelity, which as mm-hmm. I was chatting with, with Andrew Friedman recently, and he, you know, I sent him the same kind of quote article and we were chatting and he points out, of course, that textual fidelity is a relatively recent uh, invention. So this idea of defending it. But more immediately, and, and more or less in response to our first segment, is also this this question of infection uh, and national boundaries and uh, national identity as constituted in and by artworks, uh, particularly theater, right, which restage human beings in sometimes various kinds of recognizable environments or reconstructed kind of social environments, however fantastic they may be. 
And so I really, it, it, it reminded me of just what's at stake uh, when we start talking about the arts in political moments, and particularly our a moment right now, which again, regardless of how you feel about this, is deeply entrenched in questions of populism and who constitutes the populace and the real people, as well as uh, how what arts are obligated to represent in those in those contexts, and this idea of infection from other countries invasion certainly maps onto the argument in support of Brexit and also the the current rhetoric of anti-immigration, anti-refugee resettlement in the United States that's happening right now. So all of that kind of came together in a really powerful way f- for me. And, and just to make one other connection to, to things that we've been talking about, it also reminded me of the same debate over Emma Rice and the lights mm-hmm. at the Globe and it seems to me that what we're hearing in many instances is this idea of of preservation of the past and a and a real fear that in losing theater the way it has been done there is a threat to losing uh, a sense of oneself yeah I, w- I was struck also by the kind of um nationalist overtones of this and you know i don't know about david Hare's politics and i wouldn't want to assume that he is a nationalist in that way or or what have you you know personally i am on the side of ivo van hove and emma rice these are you know two directors that he he doesn't i don't think he names emma rice but he names ivo van hove and you know i'm i think he's wrong but i will say i liked the idea of a you know theater critical debate with this much energy and and interest in it because i think he's really it's really an argument about aesthetics, you know. I mean, I think it's interesting the way it comes across in this moment of um, rejecting Europe and, and and all of this. But you know, you, you'll you'll encounter people when you're talking about theater who will say, you know, ah, oh, just tell the story, or, or they'll be against this sort of director centric theater. But he's sort of limbed the argument in a way that I think is is interesting. So he's wrong, but I would love to see more of this type of polemic from American playwrights, frankly. And I. You know, I'll just say part of why I think he's wrong. I mean, personally, I think I like Ivo Van Hove's work. I would much rather see what I imagine an Emma Rice-directed Shakespeare production is than a much more traditionalist, let's tell the story, let's evoke the language. You know, I, I prefer personally prefer director's theater to um, highly textually centric or, con- you know, sort of confer- conservative actorly theater. But... I would just point out that beyond my personal tastes, if you divorce David Hare's argument from its sort of current nationalist moment, he's essentially arguing against types of theater making that include Stanislavski, who in 1911 um, collaborated with Edward Gordon Craig on a production of Hamlet to try to infuse his new, you know, ideas about actor psych- or character psychology and, you know, completely non-realistic mise-en-scene to revive an old play. And in a way, this tradition of bringing new and modern ways of thinking and communicating to older stories includes neoclassicism, in which 
you know, 17th century playwrights wanted to go back into the Greeks and Romans and find these old stories, but essentially translate them into ways that people were interested in, in experiencing them again. So part, I think part of my objection to Hare's argument is that essentially he's against the status of theater as a living art. Right. It, it, it goes back to playwright's intent and it goes back to, you know, what was the original meaning of this? You know, Tennessee Williams is interesting only if it's about the particular kind of sexual subtext that um, the original productions of it evoke. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But I also think that part of his concern and objection goes back to that. So the fanfare that's given to theater as opposed, you know, in terms of the, the thrall given to the playwright, uh, whereas, right, in filmmaking, you know, the attention goes to the, goes to the director, right? It's, you know, so the playwright is the the voice. It's, it's that person's story. It's what lasts into the future. Like, even today, we can name more famous playwrights than we can directors. Uh, and I think that that's essentially what he's pointing to, that there is this cultural inheritance, you know, that consists of these great British playwrights um, and his concern is when you're looking at directors who kind of sort of map themselves and map their work you know over the kind of the, the purity of the artistry you know, <laughs> of, of these playwrights and obviously we can object uh, to that concern but we are in a field in which you know there is a, a continued Attention and adulation and praise given to the playwright more so than the director. You know, so I think that's really what it's coming from. I also i I have to take issue with one thing you said, though, panel. I don't, I don't know. I mean, and maybe it was intended this way, and so I, I, I can't say anything to intent or, or or meaning. But I think it's I think it would be a mistake to see this purely as a question of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No. I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, uh, you know, so, so when you said that this is primarily about aesthetics, I, I think it's it is certainly about aesthetics, but it's in aesthetics in in the service of politics, and 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 however much you want to divorce it from a current moment, at the very least, Hare's language, which I think is deliberate. I mean, most playwrights' language is, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, is 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 calculated right to to get picked up and to and to speak to a current mm-hmm. moment. I mean, you know, you don't talk about an invasion of you know hoarding Europeans in in the context of Brexit <laughs> without having some awareness of what you're doing. Um, yeah, and, I think you might be right. I, I, I mean, I, I well, go ahead. I, I keep cutting you. Oh off. no, but I just, I mean, for me, it becomes really. Uh, you know, on the one sense, I, I, I sort of enjoy the, the, you know, academic blood sport, right, of, of a good debate. At the same time, it feels tinged at the edges with the same kind of language and rhetoric that one sees from contemporary white supremacists and white nationalists in the U.S. And this idea of culture and a national heritage preservation project that... Uh, that becomes prominent in, in lots of different kinds of, of cultural representations. And, and it, that feels very dangerous to me right now. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm torn because I, I do believe that he's primarily invested in what, what Harvey is talking about, which is that it's a, it should be about what the playwright did and the directors and actors should realize the playwright. Um, and I, there's a part of me that thinks that if the 
you know, the director's theater that he was talking about, if these famous directors were coming from the U.S. and directing these productions in London, that he would be concerned about that too. But you're absolutely right. He talks about the sort of English state drama, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And there being this sort of grand British tradition of playwrights. And you're right. I mean, the rhetoric of infection in the age of Brexit, I mean, I mean, I, I forgive me. I don't know if the idea of, you know, communicability of disease is one of the, (laughs) one of the, um, arguments that people people made in favor of that but he he absolutely represents this uh this struggle along national lines um so i I think you're right he's not to be excused for that right and 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 certainly in this context of brexit right there is that anxiety and concern about what is it to be english or more specifically british right you know or more generally british right you know and i think that that is at the heart of this too, that when you have this level of circulation of culture and you're losing a focus on the authority of the playwright alongside the embracing and the staging of different styles informed by uh, non-UK theater practices, you know, that becomes a cause of alarm for him. So I agree with both of you. All right, listeners, we are now going to leave behind our discussion of debates about aesthetics and European influence in English theater and turn to another topic that has relevance in in the UK. Uh, We are very excited to welcome to the ONTAP huddle Jennifer Parker Starbuck, who is professor and head of department of drama at University of Roehampton in London. She is the author of Cyborg Theater, Corporeal and Technological Intersections in Multimedia Performance from Palgrave Macmillan, 2011, and co-author with David Saltz and our own Sarah Bay Jung of Performance and Media, Taxonomies for a Changing Field, 2015. She, I believe, is current co-editor of Theater Journal. Is that right? Yes. Um, And has a long, long CV that I won't get into all the details of. But uh, Jennifer, welcome to On Tap. Hi, nice to see you all. And thanks for inviting me here. It's great to be here. Um, well, we're so glad to, to have you on the podcast. We are a very U.S.-centric group, and we frequently have questions ourselves and from our listeners about what the field seems like and how theater and performance studies is practiced abroad. And so I thought maybe I could just start us off by asking you, Jen, to maybe talk a little bit about your own career experience. I know that you were trained um, in the field. You got your Ph.D. at, at CUNY. Is that right? And yeah, I got my PhD at CUNY in 2003, and, um, you know, like many of us in New York, thought I would get a job in New York. And when the reality of the job market hit, I started looking outside of the U.S., and that's a, a long story in and of itself, but it, it was a really eye-opening experience to start to open up the thinking to leaving the country, and I got a job... Uh, in, I started out in Scarborough at the University of Hull at the Scarborough campus. And um, I luckily was able to get partner hire there as well. So my partner, Josh Abrams, and I both moved up there for a year. And we were coming back down to London every month or so to see shows and um, 
you know, do things in London. And we ran into some people that we knew and there was another job and one thing led to another. And we were both then hired the next year at Roehampton where I've been for the past 12 years. So, right. um, well, I wonder if you could, you know, there are, there are different areas that I'm interested in in asking you about, and I'm sure that um, Sarah and Harvey have their own questions. But I wonder if you might just think back to your earlier experiences getting settled at Roehampton and the things that might have struck you as being different from the way that theater and performance studies is taught, researched, practiced in the U.S. Well, there was a big learning curve, I will say. I sat through a bunch of uh, staff meetings in the beginning, really not understanding what people were talking about. I mean, we were speaking the same language, but I really just nodded a lot because um, there's a lot of terminology that I just really wasn't familiar with at all. Just even vocabulary shifts like a course and a class are not the same, you know, same thing. Um, But system works here. It, It took me a little while to understand it and get used to it. So one of the first differences is that the undergrads go to school um, for three years instead of four. Their high school is till year 13, whereas in the U.S. you'd go till year 12. And so they and they have a different system in in high school or secondary school, as they call it. And they move into these more um, focused courses of study in their high school years so that when they go to university, they apply for really just one subject. There's not a liberal arts um, degree here for the most part. So most students are coming in to just do drama, for example, and there may be a percentage of them who do, and that's what we call single honors. So things like this, at first I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but I, I, you know, I quickly got used to it. There's also combined honors. So they, some of them will do a combination of drama and something else. But uh, the, the majority of them, um, in my experience, were single honors, and they so they just study drama. So that already, as you can imagine, shifts the kind of, of program and the kind of teaching that we might do. So with the, with the lack of the liberal arts model, does that mean that you have you know, we have a, di- a dynamic at WashU, for example, where we have a lot of double majors, you know, and, and you get the sense that many of our students are, you know, have what they consider to be a sort of serious pre-professional major and then theater for exploration of creativity and, and what whatever else. Do you feel like because of the three-year program and the single, single honors model that you get more students who are just wholly dedicated to theater? Yeah, I mean, they are. That's all they're doing for the most part is drama and so our program has to cover a range of things as well you know as well but um i will say that the other thing about the system that's very different here is that unless you're in a conservatory there's not really a focus on actor training so we don't do any kind of bfa in the university level um in the universities the students who want to go to a more conservatory based uh, school will well, usually have to audition and there aren't that many. I mean, RADA, Central School of Speech and Drama, there are only a few that really provide a conservatory-based model. So the university system is more about a career opportunity, but not necessarily from a actor training perspective or a design training perspective. We don't really do that at the university level, So, you know, which isn't to say that we don't teach acting, we'll, but I'll, we'll teach an approaches to acting class 
or in acting, you know, in the community or something like that, rather than acting one, two, three kind of thing. So I, that makes me wonder, like, because I know that you do include a lot of um, practice and, and, you know, what has now become kind of called practice-based research. And I'm wondering how much of that happens at the undergraduate level or what kind of staging or uh, practice-based, studio-based courses um, are involved. Because I think when a lot of us think about the separation of university and conservatory, you know, some of us might imagine that it's all academic courses all the time and there's very little production or, or performance-based work. But, you know, I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to, to that. Where does the performance and, and like studio-based, are there, are there studio-based classes in, in your undergraduate curriculum, for example? Yes, I mean, and I can speak mostly from my own experiences at the University of Roehampton, although a lot of the universities um, run similar types of programs. But we, our students have the opportunity to do performance in every year Although when I say do performance, it's mostly coming out of devised work or possibly text-based as a source. But um, the tradition is really around collaborative work and devised work. And so it's not necessarily putting on plays in, in the sense that we you might more so in the US programs. There's not a demand to produce a season, for example, because that's not the kind of program that we have. So it's kind of a different economy altogether. For example, in the in the second year, I teach a class called Studio Theater Production. And this class meets a couple times a week for several hours a day. And it's about devising a production, a public production at the end of the term. So I come in with a an idea and it's usually research-based. Um, and sometimes there may be a text involved or they develop a text and then over the course of the semester, we work on research and, and practical tools for making this performance. So I, for example, I'm trained in a viewpoints method. So a lot of my students end up with some of this kind of training through this practice-based research project. Um, other tutors who come in will do different kinds of work altogether. So every, it's really about the tutor and it's about the, the group of students that you have. At the end of the year, um, we, we put on these, these productions in a public capacity. Um, although these aren't, it's not about selling tickets, it's about friends and family and other students coming. And it's usually during a week of performances at the end of the semester. I, I'm remembering, you know, portions of Shannon Jackson's book, Professing Performance, which is about the way that theater and performance education develops in the U.S. And, you know, many universities, um, as I'm sure you know, here will not only have a season, but will have this sort of aesthetic standard of professional regional theater. So our lights and our costumes, as much as possible, aspire to be, you know, what you would expect at a, at a professional theater or a, or a major cultural institution. So, you know, maybe this is a question beyond your familiarity or, or sort of thinking about how this state of affairs has developed. But do you feel as though the British institutions see themselves less as cultural institutions or cultural institutions in different ways? Or is it really resulting from a sense that professional training happens in, in um, conservatories and that university education, apart from those special cases, needs to be humanities and research-based more so than uh, practice-based? Yeah, I would say that is a, a pretty correct assessment. I mean, the, the conservatories do tend to do 
shows where they invite the professional community to come see the students and there is more of an emphasis on um, placing them in companies in the country. Um, although I think the university system has a pretty good and successful rate of also creating actors. A lot of them then go on to do MAs in, in the conservatories, for example. So the university isn't seen as the place where you would become a professional. It's a, it's a kind of um, place to expand your knowledge and to learn more about the subject. I mean, because it's not a liberal arts-based program and that's all they do is, you know, and all they do is drama, there's a lot of flexibility in what we can teach and the kind of program that we develop. And I have found as a teacher here that it's given me a lot of really interesting opportunities. So for example, I teach my non a non-human in performance class to our third years in an advanced seminar kind of mode, probably a kind of class I might teach in a master's level in the US, but it's you know very research-based and you know in a seminar capacity. You know, so I think that like I really I try to emphasize to the students coming in that you that we're not here to judge whether you have acting talent or that whether you're skilled as a performer. We're here to ex explore these kinds of movement techniques, vocal techniques, understandings of text, and performance making practices. And we also talk about you know other kinds of careers and professions that use drama and the things that they learn as a, a kind of jumping off point. I was wondering, looking at your colleagues and just in conversation with people who've been um, within the educational system for, I don't know, a generation, like people have been serving for 20 years um, or 30 years, what are they saying in terms of where theater and performance studies is trending within the UK? I mean, and I'm thinking specifically about like, you know, I know that there were concerns a few years ago about uh, federal funding for uh, universities, right? And, and how that might be or may not be affecting theater and performance offerings, uh, looking at maybe a rise in sort of a, a nationalist perspective um, um, in light of Brexit, right? Just trying to figure out like what is trending in the UK right now? Oh, well, Brexit is trending um, everywhere. Uh, I mean, I think there's similarities at the moment in terms of all of our fears about the arts and humanities. And, you know, the danger of looking at education as a business is that when it comes to the bottom line and I as head of department and budget um, person in charge of the budget I'm well aware you know we are always in a deficit so there may be other departments that bring in many many more students but the value of of the arts and humanities is is what keeps us going I, I do hope that that continues I mean England has a very strong theatrical tradition as as of course you know and I don't think that anyone wants to cut these programs so I think right now you know, there's a, a lot of fear in the communities um, here and there, I think, uh, because of the decisions being made by politicians. And, and in this country, a lot of that has to do with funding. I was wondering if you wanted to say a little bit about the, you know, your experience with, with the REF or the Research Excellence Framework. Well, yes, this is a big concern for all of us. Um, and it's more it, it's more along the the lines of 
our jobs rather than um, you know our, our con the system around our jobs rather than the system around the teaching. So one of the things that's different here, and uh, from that from that perspective, is that there's not a tenure system in the same way that there is in the U.S. So when you're hired, you're hired with a probationary period of I'd say about three to five years, after which your job is a permanent one. But to get promoted, you need to go through a series of, of hoops and checks and balances, the same as in the U.S. And at one stage of the of the hierarchies, um, the reader position, which we don't have in the U.S., but um, it's equivalent to getting tenure. So your work is externally vetted, and they, you know, some people out there are chosen to read and to decide whether you should get this promotion. So that is slightly different from the U.S. But then the other thing that was, we don't have that, but what we do have is every seven years, this research exercise, and it changed, it's changed slightly in every time I've been through it. And I, there, right now there's talk about the changes that might happen in the next iteration of it. But uh, basically what it has been and what the last ref was, was every department pulls together research, uh, full-time faculty submit four pieces of published work it's then sent as a, a whole dossier of all the people who have submitted the work to a, a national panel and then the work is read and then vetted against a system of originality rigor and significance and it's a, a one to four star system <laughs> so Basically, you want to get, you know, four-star research, um, which is four-star in originality, research, and significance. And the departments that are, are determined to have the highest rankings get the most money. <laughs> and, you know, we're always working towards this, this making sure the ref, the research that we submit is refable, we like to say, and <laughs> has these um, qualities to it. It's not, you're not really judged individually you're judged as a department. So you, we don't really know what each individual submission is, is given. So, so you, so everyone puts their research into this system and then your department comes back with a overall rating. Is that right? Yeah. That's okay. But you have no that, idea who like upped your, upped your average or maybe. I know. So you can all you think you're responsible for the good star rating. Well, we get extensive feedback, so there are ways you can kind of tell, but it's not, you know, it's, it's, that's not the focus of it, really. Can you get three and a half stars? <laughs> no, you can, you know, I think that in the end they do judge, you know, in our, all of our pre-ref work that we do, we, we say, oh, three to four, two to three, let's help it get up to four, whatever. Um, so we're always, we're all aware of how this works and, and what of our research is the most likely to succeed, if you will. I think we've found the system for your uh, fantasy faculty uh, <laughs> game there panel, right? Because we actually do have like hard comparables, like, you know, comparable statistics here in terms of I'm ranking. You, so we got it. We we we, at, we we adopt the ref system. We we make a rigorous uh, roster and drafting application, and we, it can replace actual academia. <laughs> there, there, and, and and who needs to read anything anymore, right? We can just sort of slice and dice the numbers, and uh, we'll know we'll know who won. Oh, and I, I will just also add though that one of the big differences here is that, as you mentioned, practice-based research. And that is something that you know you can focus on. A, you can focus a PhD as a practice-based research PhD, and um, 
as a staff member, you can submit your practice-based research to the REF as well. And it's accompanied by a, a statement that, that um, describes it and whatnot. So that's also, we do consider practice as our research here. Well, Jen, this has been really illuminating. And um, we, of course, have you know many more questions. And maybe we'll just have to pursue those with you and um, offline venues. But um, let me just say thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It was really a delight and really informative. Well, it's my pleasure to be here with you all. Thanks, Jen. All right. Thank you. Finally, listeners, before we get to drafts, um, we wanted to actually follow up a segment that we did earlier in this podcast. So we recorded this edition of the podcast in two parts. And so it is now a week later from when we um, talked about uh, Harvey's article in HowlRound and the prospects for arts funding under a Trump administration. And we wanted to follow up on this because since we recorded that, the New York Times has done a bit of of, uh, reporting on precisely the question of how um, uh, certain federal um, budget outlays might be eliminated under Trump. There was an article February 18th um, basically confirming what had been reported earlier that in a um, White House Budget Office document, the NEA as well as the NEH and the um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting and many other programs are proposed to be eliminated. Um, And then there was a follow-up article on February 19th that talked about the way that arts institutions are responding to this, um, also in the New York Times. And so in a way, there's a bit more of a concrete sense of what the funding of the arts might look like under the new administration. So uh, I guess we just wanted to have a few minutes to talk more about that. Um, I'm not sure what you guys think. In a way, this was not terribly surprising because I felt as though there had already been talk about um, budgets that proposed eliminating the NEA. Um, But what do you guys think now, having seen that confirmed? Well, I'm sort of curious to hear if this changes your cautious optimism there, Harvey, because I, I, I left our last segment, which for the listeners will be a few minutes ago and for <laughs> us will be a, a, a week ago, um, feeling like, oh, you know what? Uh, yeah, okay, good. I think we're in good shape here. You know, I think this will be good. And then I saw these articles, and I'm like, oh no, we're not. No, this is this is this is no good. So I'm just wondering if this <laughs> if this changes your view at all, or if you can if you can reassure me, Harvey, that this is this is more sound and fury, but but you know, but we'll get to hang on to our like point two, you know, point zero two five percent of the U.S. budget. Yeah, I mean, I. In my core, I feel as though we we need to be optimistic that there's a past funding record, right, that indicates that there's plenty of allies. And and over the course of the past week, I've looked to uh, see how impactful the NEA has been in red states. Like, so, for example, 20 percent of of Arizona's uh, arts funding comes from the NEA, right? And then you can actually work your way around and look at, you know, sort of West Virginia and other places and see the significance of the NEA. I then began to look to responses by um, art, arts agencies within these red states, and you know, consistently the leaders are saying, "Well, remember, it's not a presidential t- decree; it's really about getting Congress to act and then to uh, support the arts." And then the NEA itself has noted that uh, 
over the years, the NEA has made a push since 96 to really cultivate and lobby, you know, constituency across both parties. So I feel as though there's people prepared to stand up and fight against this. Uh, that being said, you know, I where I begin to become a slightly less optimistic uh, is in the area of the potential for some level of arts funding cut, right? You know, I, I worry that the compromise uh, might be to keep the NEA alive and, and moving forward, but with reduced funding. So that concerns me. Uh, it's either that or this is just like a, a ploy, you know, to get more military funding uh, and preserve consistent consistent levels of arts funding. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm really much more concerned about the NEH uh, because that's the constituency that I don't see really people stepping up, stepping forward and uh, loudly proclaiming and asserting the value of the NEH. Like the NEA, I think there's going to be protest and uh, petitions online, um, in-person activism. But the NEH, I have yet to really see that movement uh, to save that organization. Um, Just to respond as as the, the downer of, of, of our group. So um, I, I, I take heart in what you say, Harvey. The only thing I would say is, is really kind of two, two key things here. One is that so far, it seems as if uh, the current administration is defying precedent right and left. So I find that's true. Uh, not a lot of comfort, though I won't say none, but but not a lot of comfort in what's happened before. Um, and I appreciate your perspective on looking at, at states and certainly what's happening in Congress. What's what concerns me is two things. One is um, Trump's overall approval rating, which though. Uh, historically incredibly low for this early in his presidency is not necessarily as low as one might expect. And if you look at sort of aggregate polls, um, it's it, it seems to have leveled off in the in the you know low to mid 40s, um, which still suggests a, a certain amount of support. And if you turn to right wing media, particularly a lot of the online uh, media discourse, the idea of cutting the NEA and the NEH and uh, PBS and, and NPR um, is being met with a lot of enthusiasm by his core base constituency. Yes. And again, I'm, I, I'm one of my number one concerns or area, even areas of confusion, and this goes across different area, different aspects, is, is Congress's response um, and there are a lot of people who are saying things but doing very little, um, including red states, in, in which things that are happening seem to be of 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 not great in you know self interest. Right. Um, and so it's I think we're in an era now where the where the constituencies are no longer as clearly defined or even necessarily as legible as they have been historically, and migrate concern where this arts funding is concerned, kind of following along with uh, the way that individual states have treated um, flagship universities. I think Wisconsin certainly being the most uh, prominent exemplary, but by no means alone. And one would think like this is in, you know, a a state's self-interest, except if that's not your, if your constituency is not broad-based and not necessarily has, doesn't have the same kind of longevity or long-term outlook, um, I do think that 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 arts and, and certainly NEH funding could be uh, a kind of red meat throw in the in the very short term. Yeah, um, I I guess my take on this is 
neither bit. I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic, specifically on the question of NEA funding, though it's it's as part of a broadly pessimistic view, um, because I imagine that this budget document is you know it's part of a process, as Harvey said. It's Congress's job to draft and and pass the budget. And my understanding of the more establishment Republican priority is that they really want to bend the cost curves down on the big entitlement programs, Medicare especially. And so what I see this being is, you know, these are, you know, very small parts of the federal budget that they propose cutting them entirely. And then basically as a bargaining chip that they can give to moderate Republicans and Democrats, somewhere in the negotiating process, they say, fine, you know, we'll continue to fund the CPB and the NEA at 80% of their current levels. But we want you to agree to, you know, slashing Medicare and Social Security by $15 billion, right? So that it becomes a kind of symbolic victory that the left can claim as a way to concede what are greater material um, concessions in terms of the social safety net for people. Um, except that as you're as I'm listening to you, I think, oh, no, if you really wanted to play the game. And I think there's a certain extent to which what we're seeing in these first several weeks um, as a lot of test balloons, right, to see what's going to play. I wonder if, if actually the scenario you put forth isn't the reverse. Because you take away Medicare and you hurt a lot of people very quickly. If you're playing to the optics, if you want to dangle the cultural institutions, and then when you don't cut the big entitlements that you've been talking about, um, if you cover the fact that you're not making those kinds of cuts because they really do hurt people in a very immediate way and they rile up folks coming to local um, congressional offices, if you then feed the the sacrifice of the the not truly substantive um, and Mm -hmm. and, and budgetarily substantial programs as a way of, of... making it clear that you're doing something and you're doing what you said you would do and you're taking away these things that are very visible but not actually impactful and although they have economic impact as harvey is saying no one feels that right away except for the people associated with those organizations yeah and and you would serve your constituency by punishing liberals or you know punishing people who uh i believe trump diehard supporters want to punish so it it could be that way as and well. And you might, you know, bonus distract from other kinds of uh, less visible but but more in- insidious cuts that are, you know, again, not about wiping something out wholesale, but sort of, you know, rewriting regulations or doing something within that has a significant budgetary impact but doesn't show up in the same kind of, you know, front page, you know, sound bite way. Right. So it is time for our drafts. These are our thoughts in progress, our works, our budding ideas in uh, the time when spring is approaching. I'm these ha! metaphors. These metaphors Sorry. are yeah. I, I will. Spring approaching in in Dece- in February and Maine is, is laughable. I, yeah, to you it's to you it's laughable. We're starting to get you know green shoots popping up through the yard. Um, uh, but uh, uh, who would like to lead us off with their draft? Sure, I'll, I'll go first. And it's not something that I'm working on right now. I guess, well, it's not true. It's something that I'm somewhat involved in and overseeing. I've spent the last, I don't know, a few weeks looking at the 
ATHA proposals uh, for the Las Vegas conference, and then I'm also on the program committee for the ASTR conference in Atlanta. Uh, so between those two associations and, and the hundreds of individual paper presentations, it gives you a sense of the field, uh, and I, I really can't identify trends right now because it's so massive that like, I can make an argument for the growth of Shakespeare studies as opposed to the um, equal growth of <laughs> some other area. Uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting to uh, look and see how certain scholars' work is being more increasingly, increasingly cited, mm-hmm. right? So there's a way in which uh, some figures are, are entering um, a generally recognized senior scholar status because of their citation um, in conference abstracts, right? Uh, and that's fascinating. Who to are me. You, who who are you seeing cited? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's all. I mean, at the senior level, it's really like who is already prominent, who just begins to appear everywhere, right? So there's a way in which, um, like Munoz, you know, already you know a well-established figure, uh, you know, has really. Uh, in part because of the uh, Jose Munoz uh, research group within ASTR uh, with the uh, very deliberate effort to uh, cite uh, disidentifications uh, has become more cited in these proposals and in these panel applications than I'd seen previously. Uh, I mean, certainly I've I've known Rebecca Schneider for for many years. She was on my dissertation committee, uh, and I've seen her uh, go from tenure to uh, go from assistant professor to tenure to full professor uh, to uh, keynote speaker everywhere, uh, and seeing her her name um, cited pretty much everywhere related to uh, reenacted performance and, and slipperiness of theory as well. Uh, so it's just really interesting to look at this moment where um, there there's a changing of the guard. Uh, as one generation of scholars uh, are beginning to retire, and then there's this next generation who uh, are senior, who are active, who will remain in the academy for another you know, generation or so, a generation of scholars, that is to say. So it's just fascinating. That is interesting. Sarah, what do you got? Uh, so my draft is uh, more or less things I'm I'm reading at the moment. So kind of following up some of our earlier segments, there's a wonderful essay in The New Yorker by Alec, Alex Ross entitled Making Art in Difficult Times um, that I found very compelling. I also came across a book uh, not too long ago that I'm almost done with that I found a, a really useful read and I've, I've enjoyed it. It's T. Mills uh, Kelly's Teaching History in a Digital Age. And this goes along with an edited collection of writing history in the digital age. And there's nothing specific about theater and performance per se, but I think that that anyone who's sort of interested in, in performance history, historiography, uh, will find it really compelling, particularly if you've ever had to teach theater history. Um, I think lots of the same ideas that, that Kelly talks about there are, are relevant to, to our field. So I've been kind of thinking that through as I'm te- myself teaching a performance history class. And then the the last book that I'm kind of uh, really into right now is um, one of my favorites, Norbert Wiener, right, mid-century uh, mathematician uh, and uh, computer scientist or sort of foundational figure in computer science. Uh, he wrote Cybernetics and the Human Use of Human Beings, which was all about sort of the social impact of, of cybernetics and computers in society. And then his follow-up book to those from 1964 is a piece called God and Gollum, Inc., 
a comment on certain points where cybernetics impinges on religion. And one of the, the wonderful kind of opening quotes, uh, and this is from the preface, right? So this is the very beginning of the book. He says, the problem, and again, this is 1964, the problem of unemployment arising from automization is no longer conjectural, but has become a very vital difficulty of modern society. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you've been following any of the recent, you know, sort of discussions of AI. Um, but as you go further into the book, there's this kind of wonderful moment where the analogy that he gives to the impact of cybernetics um, on religion and in, and in cultural life more generally, he equates with the story of the monkey paw, which is mm -hmm. where the monkey paw gives you three wishes. Um, and, <laughs> and but by you, the third, you you're, you wish you were dead, you know, because, yeah. <laughs> because of the unintended consequences that come with wish number one and wish number two. And, and he uses that as a kind of analogy for understanding. And I'm just, I, 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 I admit to sort of loving a particular uh, feature of finding weird predictions of the present in writings of the past. Uh, did, so. um, did did Wiener um, invent cybernetics as a science? Was he the developer yes. of, or one of the early? Okay, because I've encountered this through social theory through um, uh, Nicholas Luhmann, who does a brief. Because you think of cybernetics as being you know computer science, and I think it ultimately is, but it means steering, right? It means sort of you know the processes that determine steering, and has a sort of longer tradition in social theory. Well, his um, his a. Uh his subtitle, right? So cybernetics, which I believe is a term that he coined in, in the book from 1948, um, was cybernetics or control and communication in the animal and the machine. And, yeah, so. and it's in that book, he talks about this shift from what he calls in the 18th and 19th century as the era of clocks and, and sort of mechanization to the 20th century, which was the era of communication and control. Mm -hmm. And that sort of radiates out for a whole, a whole, in a whole bunch of directions that is very useful. But, but yeah, certainly social theory being one of them. Fabulous. Um, I will complete our um, uh, round of drafts on what we have been reading um, by just giving a, a shout out to Shane Boyle's article in the last theater survey, the Marxist, Marxism edition. Um, so he reads Marx for you know, essentially an attempt to account or construct a Marxian account of how theater workers, including actors, are productive laborers in Marx's view. Marx's view, um, And I think he finds some really interesting quotes in um, the theories of surplus value. So this is just a really good essay, and I've been reading it. I, I read it um, partly because I've been reading Marx myself and reading Capital, um, partly as part of my research for this book on social theory that I'm working on. But I will admit with increased investment and vigor on my part since the election. Um, but there's a lot of theater metaphor in Capital. And, and as I said, Boyle is not really reading for theatrical metaphor. Um, he's reading for, you know, how, when, how, when Marx is generally understood to be talking about um, uh, value as labor power sedimented in material commodities. How do we think of the ephemeral work of actors um, as you know productive and generative of capital in a Marxian sense? Um, so there's great stuff. I mean, people have been rereading Marx intently for a while, but that article is a really great um, guide to key texts in Marx concerning theater. Panel, are you reading the Marx Capital, uh, or are you reading? Yes. Uh, Thomas 
Piketty's. Piketty. No, it's Marx, but partly because um, Anthony Giddens, who's a sociologist and, yeah. and scholar of social theory, sort of reads Marx, Weber, and Durkheim as um, the sort of key texts of classical sociology or classical social theory. So I'm doing close readings of some of those key texts. And I had never read Capital front to back. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's pleasurable. I mean, there are parts that aren't fun. Chapter three is not fun. <laughs> but, um, um, but if you just if you just listen to David Harvey's lectures, which are online, and he goes chapter by chapter, if you just read and listen to those lectures, Hello. it's it's delightful. It's a it's a it's a Hello. fabulous book. And the footnotes are a lot of fun. Um, so I recommend everyone read Shane Boyle and also read Marks. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.